Okay, I am really excited because today we are wrapping up our series, uh, Christ is Greater Than Everything. We've been going through this sort of walk through the book of Colossians, which was a letter from Paul to the church for the last seven weeks or so, delving into this book. And if you're here for the first time today, you picked a great Sunday to come in on this series because Paul is going to get into some really interesting subjects today. Um, seven weeks we've spent walking through Colossians, but you know, really we've just skimmed the surface. We've just skimmed the surface of this revolutionary message that Paul is bringing. And today's definitely an example of that because we've got a lot of verses to cover, but we're just going to kind of have time to hit and run uh, some of these, these verses. But we hope, what we hope to do is plant some seeds in your mind. That'll kind of make you go, hmm, I want to learn more about this. And hopefully you will uh, continue in your own study and in community with others uh, to keep pulling back the curtain of this beautiful letter. This letter that's, to me, it's just like a love, love letter to Jesus. Um, but these words are, the implications behind the words that Paul says in this letter are actually pretty radical. They hold a lot of surprises, even for a long-time disciple. I promise you, if you've, you know, read all the, you've read all the Bible, you, know all the, you think you know all the gist of what Paul's got to say, I encourage you to really dig into this letter. Today we're going to be starting with the last few verses of chapter 3. Uh, you can turn there if you would like. And then Paul's going to finish up in chapter 4. There's about 11 verses at the end of chapter 4. We're not even going to cover their personal greetings of Paul to some other people. Um, but here we go. Now, first, I want to ask you a question. First, as you turn your Bibles over to Colossians chapter 3. Let's say you wanted to have a meeting with Jesus. Let's say you were back there in the first century. And uh, you walked into the Last Supper. Everybody remember the Last Supper you know, the picture, Leonardo da Vinci, he was there, I guess. He, he painted this beautiful picture, the Last Supper. But the Last Supper, that's the meal that Jesus was celebrating with his disciples. We just commemorated that just now with communion. Before he went to the cross, he had this last meal with his disciples. Now, if you walked into the room, you're there to see Jesus. You walked into the room, and you had to take a guess. Who's the master of the room? Right? None of us know exactly what Jesus looked like. So you'd walk in, it's like, I wonder which one's Jesus. Who's the master in this room? Who are the servants in this room? Who's the Lord and who's the disciples? Who is the king of this little group here? Who's the leader of the tribe? You take a guess. Would it be easy to spot Jesus? You might, uh, your eyes might be diverted to Peter. He might be the one that catches your eye first. Right? Peter's always standing up. He's always got something to say. He's usually the loudest. He just never stops talking. You might see Peter over there, and you see him, and like there he is over there. He's telling off that, that servant boy or something, washing his feet over there. The kid's probably not doing a good job or something. And then you think, oh, wait, he's, he's telling him not to wash his feet. Well, he doesn't want his feet. He doesn't, must not want his feet wet. You know, that servant boy ought to listen closer to whatever Peter's. Wait a minute. That servant's talking back to him. Wait a minute, that Peter is calling that servant master. And you'd be thinking, as, as you listen, you'd find out that the person that you didn't even make eye contact when you walked into the room, the person your attention just sort of glazed past as you were looking for the important people in the room, is actually the master of all. He's the one. He's the one you heard about. Maybe you came to see him, but he's on his hands and knees washing 
the disciples' feet, which was the role of a servant or a slave. We use the word servant uh, to kind of soften it, but it was the role of a slave of a household, washing feet before the meal. In the book of John, he tells us, he was talking about this story, and he says, Jesus was showing them the full extent of his love. He's showing them the full extent of his love. So I want, just, I want us to understand this, this moment. Before we jump into Colossians, I want us to understand something about this, this incredible moment, Jesus washing the feet of his disciples. Jesus, don't get it wrong, he is not just giving them a cute and clever object lesson. He's not, you know, this isn't one of his servant leadership seminars he has on Saturday mornings, and he's showing them an object lesson. This is the heart of God on display. This is what God does. This is who Jesus is, the heart of a God who says, I want to create, and I want to love, and I want to serve. Earlier in Colossians, we read in the first chapter, remember Paul breaks out into song um, in chapter 1, verses 15 through 19. He breaks out into this song that Jesus is the creator of the universe. A couple years ago when we were studying Philippians, in Philippians chapter 2, Paul says that God incarnated himself as a servant among us. And so what we have here is the one who creates comes to serve the created. It's just totally backwards, doesn't make any sense to our human brain. The one who is the creator came and served the created, the head, the source of all. He became the lover, the servant. Over in John 13, Jesus reminds us, I'm the master, you're the servant, and yet you see what I'm doing here? So don't think that you don't have to do this either for other people. I mean, I'm doing this for you. You do this for others. And what was so funny is the disciples in his time, the disciples were still trying to fit the kingdom concept that Jesus had been telling about. They were trying to sort of fit it into the mold of their worldly concept of leadership, right? So Jesus is talking about leadership, but then he's talking about the kingdom, and the disciples are like, awesome, the kingdom sounds neat. We want to be in charge. Who gets to be in charge? Do we get to be in charge, right? The disciples ask things like, can we have little thrones around your throne, when you have your throne, Jesus, can we have a throne? Jesus, who, who among us is the greatest? Jesus is teaching them about the kingdom, this upside-down kingdom, and, and they're trying to fit in their worldly concept of leadership. But Jesus told them in Mark chapter 10, he said, whoever wants to be great among you must be the servant. Whoever wants to be first must be a slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve. So Jesus takes leadership and he, and he turns it upside down. Now we're talking about this because Paul is going to talk today about some issues. He's going to talk about masters and slaves. He's going to talk about some uncomfortable things for our ears, our modern ears to hear. He's going to talk about masters and slaves and husbands and wives. Wives, by the way, in that first century, their status wasn't much better than slaves. They were pretty much possessions of their husbands. And so it helps, I think, before we dive into the words of Paul, we want to see how Jesus teaches on leadership and authority so that now when we dive into Paul's, the last of his writings to the Colossians, when he starts talking about master-servant, leadership, followership, followership, we don't misunderstand what Paul 
is pointing to. Remember, Paul is the conductor, but Jesus is the composer. Jesus is the composer. Paul isn't just making up new stuff, new rules, or something like that, adding. He is, he's fleshing out the words of Jesus. He's saying, okay, guys, let's, let's play this music. Here's what it sounds like in first century Middle East Rome, Roman Empire. Here's what it sounds like. So, so we see the empire, or we see the kingdom, rather, breaking, breaking through. Paul is comp- he's conducting the music in his day and age. By the way, guess what your calling is? To walk out these doors and reveal the kingdom to people. To conduct the music that Jesus composed for people. Here's how it looks in Spring, Texas in the 21st century. That's what we get to do too. So, now I want to give a little caveat here. Um, even though we don't have time to really dig deeply into all the verses this morning, some of these verses that we're going to look at, they touch on some super controversial stuff, right? Super controversial stuff. It has, it, we'll be touching on kind of hit and run. Like I said, we'll just be touching on some theology that has the potential, has the potential to make people in the church get riled up, Right? split into two different aisles and draw their swords, right? That's what people sometimes do. Um, not you, because this is Generations Church, and if you've been coming here very long, what are we all about? Relationship. We're about unity. We're about relationship. Um, and we, we, when we draw our swords, our enemy is the devil. It's never each other. Amen. 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 So we're not about that here at Generations. We like to walk in unity based on love of Christ. Unity based on love. So if we say something this morning, here's how that fleshes fleshes out. If we say something this morning and um, you don't agree with it, that's cool. It turns out that that's okay. Uh, Perhaps do, I, I would suggest you do what I would do if we were out to lunch and you said something that I didn't agree with. What you would do is humbly allow it to challenge you. Let it challenge you to continue studying the scriptures. Say, Lord, how can I let that inform me? How can I do better at what I know is the truth? How can I do better at that? Because none of us are doing it perfectly, right? So, Lord, how can I do that even better? How can I let that challenge me? And it may challenge you in some fresh ways you didn't expect. But you know what? Even if at the end of the day we agree to disagree on something— that's okay, because I still love you, okay? You're still my brother. You're still my sister in the Lord. And I'll tell you this, my relationship with you is much more important to me than you walking lockstep with every detail of my theology, okay? My relationship with you is what's most important. So, you guys ready? Here we go. Put on your seatbelt. We're like starting in third gear. Here we go. Colossians 3, verse 18. Wives, submit to your husbands. Woo! There we go. As is fitting to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. All right. We're going to get real today. Verses 18 and 19 of Colossians. There are some parallel passages in other places in the Bible. But let me tell you, these verses can understandably make some people nervous. They make some people nervous, especially women. Uh, we live in a society that has been led by men for thousands of years, right? And that's been such a great decision, hasn't it? <laughs> in the world, a wonderful place. 
men doing a great job. Um, and the truth is, verses like this have been used by men to subjugate women to inferior roles in culture, inferior roles in the church, and in terrible instances, even abusive situations in the home. So when you take the Bible, this is why it's so good that we take some time every once in a while to study these books, like Colossians, in context, start to finish. Because now this verse is going to take on a whole different flavor once you've been reading chapter 1 and then chapter 2, right? Chapter 3. This sounds different now. Pulled out of context, these verses can come across sounding like wives, you got to obey your husbands. Obey whatever they say because he's the master of the house. He gets to make all the rules because he's got that Y chromosome, which just makes human beings more leadery, right? I don't know what it does, but it, it's important. And, you know, you, you give him the remote control. He makes the decisions what color car you're going to buy. And you got to go along with his judgment, what, however much of an idiot he is. You go along with his judgment. And if you don't, you're not a good wife. Have you ever heard this? <laughs> right? I got an ally over here. All right. As it turns out, I want to put your mind at ease, because as it turns out, when you read Scripture in context, when you read lots of different Scriptures, and you read it in context, you discover there's this whole different, beautiful picture that Jesus and then later the Apostle Paul are beginning to paint for us. Now, in Roman society... Let's kind of travel back 2,000 years. In Roman society, hearing this phrase, wives submit to your husbands, wasn't actually anything new. That Paul wasn't saying anything, oh, we hadn't heard that before. In fact, this was part of something called the three codes, the three household codes, that was invented by Aristotle 4 BC, 400 BC, 400 years before Jesus. Aristotle comes along, comes up with the three household codes. This is how everybody is going to be good Greco-Roman citizens, and it keeps everybody happy. And uh, the household codes, uh, you, you know, men, you make sure your, your wife is submitting, you make sure your kids are submitting, you make sure your slaves are submitting. And it makes everything just run super smooth and everybody's happy, unless you're a wife, a slave, or a children. <laughs> the men are just deliriously happy. This works great. This is part of the three household codes. Um, in fact, in Rome, Roman law in Paul's day, the, the people he's talking to, remember, are Greco-Roman citizens in Colossae. That's kind of modern-day Turkey. He's talking to these guys. These are good Greco-Roman citizens. They become Christians. Roman law, the law, required wives to submit. Required wives to submit. It required, in fact, women to remarry if their husband died. The law was women had to remarry so that they would have someone to submit to. Right? Because you couldn't just have all these unsubmitted women running around <laughs> discovering they were just as capable as men. We couldn't, we've got to keep a hand on this. Y'all got to get married, you know, remarry fast as you can. Um, other places in the Bible, it really makes it come alive when you realize these places in the Bible where Paul gives these instructions to people and tells them it's actually good for you not to, if you're not married, you don't have to get married. It's actually good for you to stay single, right? He gives them permission to. He tells widows, if you were a widow, if your husband's died, you don't have to remarry if you don't want to. You could stay single. Now, this was controversial stuff. There, there are history records. Christian women in the Roman Empire being hauled off to jail because they were breaking the law, walking around single. So this is the environment that Paul is living in. 
So at first, when you read this, you read, Paul says, wives, submit to your husbands. That doesn't sound very revolutionary, and it wouldn't have sounded revolutionary to to the church either. What he does say next would be really shocking, though, to Roman citizens reading this for the first time. He says, husbands, love your wives. Why? Because within the Greco-Roman culture, within that household code Aristotle came up with, and they still followed, how the man of the house, the paterfamilias, that's what he was called, the man of the house, how he ran his household was paramount. That's what was important. He, he was to lay down the law. He was to make sure his wife was submitting. He was to make sure his slaves were submitting, his children, everybody. He was the master. The man was the, was the one everything revolved around. It was very top-down. In none of the Roman literature about the household codes do we find love instructed to husbands. None of it. Love wasn't even a central part of marriage to them back then, right? Most often, people married for convenience or for some business situation or, you know, for a, a cultural thing. I want my family joined with your family, so I'm going to give you my son, you give me your daughter. You know, we, we do it like that. So love, love is a very revolutionary thing that Paul's admitting here. It was not radical that wives should be called to submit. It is radical that husbands be called to love. Now, don't stop there because this gets even more radical when we see Paul's words to the Ephesians. This is a parallel passage. He writes to the Ephesians just like he writes to the Colossians. And he tells about many of the same things. He teaches many of the same things. But sometimes he kind of fleshes it out a little more, unpacks his thoughts more. And over to the Ephesians in, in 521, he says that husbands not only are supposed to love, but they too should submit to their wives. What? What? Right? Conveniently forgotten by lots of husbands today. Mutual submission. So rather than just singling out wives to submit the gospel, what did we say last week? The gospel frees us to serve. The gospel frees us to serve others. In the kingdom, everybody submits. This is the thing. In the kingdom, everybody submits submits. Well, I don't have to submit. I'm saved. No, in the kingdom, everybody submits. Husbands, wives, mutually submitting, each surrendering their power and authority out of love and devotion to each other. Everybody trying to out-submit the other. Let me tell you what. I can tell you firsthand, that is the recipe for a happy home. Everybody trying to out-submit each other out of love. In my experience, a husband and wife can choose to walk hand in hand, both hearing from God, both being mutually submitted to one another and submitted to Christ. There's a, that's a supernatural marriage. That is a supernatural marriage. In the kingdom, it says there is neither male nor female. There is neither slave nor free. By the way, it's really quiet in here, so I'm, I'm just going to assume you're thinking hard. You know, that, you know that scripture where it talks about uh, the man supposed to be the priest of the home? Anybody know that scripture? Anybody tell me where that is? I can't tell you either. It's not there. It's made up. There's actually not a scripture that says the man is supposed to be the priest of the home. It's been the source of so much frustration, I think, because, you know, men are like, you got to listen to me. I'm the priest of the home, right? I think I've tried to pull that out, maybe like when we first got married. That didn't last long at all. That didn't work. 
frustration. Women saying, step up, you're supposed to be the priest of the home. It's not, it's not there, actually. First Peter 2 tells us that we are all a royal priesthood. We're all a royal priesthood. That means my wife gets to hear from the Holy Spirit, just like I do, right? And she doesn't need my umbrella keeping the Jesus rain off her umbrella or whatever that picture means. I don't know that thing going around. Don't get me started on the, the umbrellas. It's not scriptural. It's not scriptural. It's religious. It's actually more reflective of the way of the world, of the way of the empire, than the mutual love and grace of the kingdom. All right, let's continue because I can tell you're having so much fun. Let's keep going. Verse 20, children, obey your parents in everything for this pleases the Lord. And again, Paul's not breaking new ground here. That was part of the Roman codes, children obey. But then what he says, fathers, do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. Become discouraged. This literally in the Greek, it means to, to lose their passion for life. To become discouraged, lose their passion for life. Fathers and mothers, it is, moms and dads, it is possible to be so critical and ride your kids so hard that they lose sight of the amazing difference they can make and the amazing things that God has for them to do and the amazing way that he loves them and the way he sees them, right? Because they're always trying to live up to what you think they should become. Paul is doing something pretty radical here. He's actually inviting fathers to accept a radical, revolutionary new level of responsibility for the spiritual health of their children, for the joy level of their children. Fathers, like that matters to the father now? I thought I'm just supposed to make sure he's doing what I said. No, the Bible says, dads, you're actually co-responsible for the joy of your children. Wow. This is an amazing family ethic. This is like pretty advanced psychology for the first century uh, being counseled here. Now, I want us to remember an important concept because sometimes we read some of the words of Paul and it, it can sound a little confusing. We'll get more into this in a bit. But an important concept in all the verses that we're reading today, and that concept is this. Paul is a missionary. Paul's a missionary, right? The gospel is brand new in the first century, brand new. So the whole world is his mission field. He doesn't like live in the Christian country and have to go anywhere to the non-Christian country to be a missionary. Everything is a mission field. So the gospel is brand new, the whole world. And so as any good missionary will tell you, you start where people are at. Isn't that right? You start where people are at while at the same time you're painting them a picture. You're giving them a vision of where God wants to take them. You start where people are at. When, when we would go visit some of those tribes in Africa, these beautiful people, and tell them about Jesus, we, the first thing we did when we get out of the car, we didn't go, you guys need to put on some more clothes, right? <laughs> this just won't do. No, you start where people are at. You start telling them about Jesus and the love of God and how the, what the difference the kingdom, that kingdom ethic can make in their life. And you see it breaking through in their lives, right? And if you go back a year later, you see people filled with the Spirit and people loving, and loving Jesus and singing. And they still look a lot different than we do. But the kingdom might look differently in different places, right? But you start where people are at, like a good missionary. So wherever he goes, Paul's telling people about the good news of this new kingdom, what it looks like in action to be a Christ follower who's also a husband. 
and who's also a father in the first century in Rome. So what that means to these guys is, wait, I'm actually not, my purpose in life is not to lord it over everybody. You know, dad, you're actually a servant of all. You're a servant of all. How are you going to bring out the best in your kids? How are you going to serve your wife and give your life for her the way Christ gave his life for the church, the bride of Christ? And so what we see in the scriptures, there's this thread. I think of it like this. There's there's this thread starting in the Old Testament going all the way to the New. There's a movement that's headed somewhere. This revelation of truth, this revelation of who God is, it's revealed little by little. This unstoppable flow, though, in the direction of something, it's going somewhere. And that something that it's going towards is the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. I call it the kingdom ethic, right? That's where we're headed. So 3,000 years ago, we've, we've thumbed back in our Bibles, God reveals our sin. He reveals our need for a Savior by using pictures of sacrifice. And through the law, we glimpse God's holiness, we glimpse our desperate need for a Savior because there's no way I can keep all this law, right? So we learn how holy he is and how much I need a Savior. And then what happens? 2,000 years ago, a Savior comes along, and he reveals this extraordinary kingdom to us, this lifestyle that's based on love and grace rather than power and authority. Even in the New Testament, so we get to the New Testament like Colossians, Paul is unpacking these incredible words of Jesus, and he's not doing it in a vacuum, is he? He's talking to real people in a real church. He didn't just publish an article on the internet. He's writing a letter to real people in a real church who are going through real issues, living under real laws by a real empire. The context of first century Rome. But even here, even here, we can see this unmistakable momentum that is flowing in the direction of God's kingdom. It's flowing there. He's pushing them. He's pushing them to God's kingdom in ways that were revolutionary, revolutionary in his day. But even then, they wouldn't become fully realized until centuries later. We just got rid of the evil of slavery 150 years ago, and we're still working it out and trying to figure out how to treat each other with respect, right? So, so they're planting seeds but it's still, it's still working its way. That's why we often say this. We often say that there's something about the kingdom of God that is both already and not yet. You might have heard that phrase, already and not yet. The kingdom is already here, and yet it's not yet fully here. But it's already here, but it's not yet fully here. Jesus told us, he said, the kingdom is among you. Rejoice, the kingdom is among you. I'm here. Check it out. And yet, it is not yet fully realized. See, that means you and I still have a part to play in spreading the kingdom. It's breaking through. It's breaking through all over this world in a hundred thousand different ways. The kingdom is this dynamic, beautiful thing. It continues to manifest in fresh ways throughout the centuries in different cultures. For example, Paul is going to speak to us in the next few verses here about masters and slaves. And he plants the seeds of love and respect. Now, he doesn't come right out and say, guys, slavery's evil. Stop doing it. That's kind of what our, you know, modern sensibility is waiting for him to say, right? Why? Why doesn't he? Because he's a missionary. He's fundamentally a missionary in this world. 
He's a missionary. He tells them, so what, he, what does he do? He says, slaves, slaves, rather than try to look for ways to cheat your masters to get back at them when they're not looking, work as unto the Lord. Work as unto the Lord. Wow. And he tells masters, he says, masters, you know, guys, rather than lord it over them, you know, and act like you're better than them and, you know, they're barely human, treat them like that. Rather than do that, what if you treat them as a brother in Christ and compensate them fairly, he's going to say. What if you treat them like a brother in Christ and you compensate them fairly? Well, if you do that, it doesn't take a genius to realize this is going to get awkward really fast, right? My brother in Christ, you're, God sees you as an equal to me, and, and I should compensate you fairly. This you know, this seems at odds with this whole uh, Christ-like love and mutual submission thing, doesn't it? Maybe I should just free my slaves. You know, that's kind of the, the natural progression. Look what he says here. Slaves, obey your earthly masters. And remember, where is this being read? In the church. It's being read in the church. What does this mean? There are slaves in the church. There are slaves who are coming to church. They've been saved. They received Jesus. They're worshiping right alongside people from all kinds of different socioeconomic levels. They're side by side. Slaves, obey your earthly masters and everything. Again, he's starting with a thought that was kind of common back then. And do it not only when their eye is on you to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart. Just work for the Lord, not for human masters. Because you know you receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. He's changing their whole perspective now. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs, right? You don't got to try to, don't try to take vengeance. They will be repaid for the wrongs. And there is no favoritism. That is a huge message. If you're a slave in the first century and you're hearing there is no favoritism, that means God doesn't love me any less than my master. He loves us the same, right? In the kingdom, the implication is clear. In the kingdom, God sees you as equals, there is no slave, there is no master in the kingdom. You know, in the world, we've got a ways to go. But in the kingdom, there's no slave or master. So here's another passage. This passage right here is another one that could be horribly, horrifically misapplied as it was 150 years ago by people trying to use this passage to justify Slavery. And that's what happens when, see, we cherry-pick verses. We take verses out of context. We fail to see that even in this snapshot of first-century culture, we're seeing a snapshot here, there is this steady current flowing in the direction of the ideal of the kingdom of God. It's flowing in the direction of the kingdom of God. That should be our goal. That should be our ideal. That's where we want to go. The love ethic of the gospel. It's breaking out all over. It's breaking through. Even here, it's breaking through even as these guys were wrestling with real-world cultural realities. You understand what I'm saying? They're wrestling with these things. Now, in this scripture, Paul's also teaching something that's relevant for us today. It applies to all of us. Most everybody in this room, you've, you've, if you go to work, you got a boss, right? Has everybody got a boss? So, so there's, there's some kingdom principles here. Everything you do, do it for the Lord, Paul's saying. Let me free you up. He's saying, let me free you up from always trying to please others, from trying to please the boss, trying to please your coworkers. Who's watching? Am I going to get credit for this? You know, just live between you and the Lord so that everything you do is an act of worship. 
It's a beautiful message for us. Paul is releasing us from this worrying about who's noticing what I do? Who's noticing everything? How am I coming across? Am I getting gypped out of some recognition or something that I deserve? It actually doesn't matter. Paul says, because our true master is the Lord Jesus Christ. That's our master. We live in real joy when everything we do is actually for him. That turns our lives into an act of worship, doesn't it? Amen. He goes on in uh, verse 1 of chapter 4. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair. Now Paul's in new territory. With what is right and fair, because you know that you have a master in heaven. He's reminding those in authority. Masters, you have a master. You have a master. Paul challenges slavery. He really does. But he doesn't do it by starting a sociological revolt. What he's doing is starting a revolution of the heart. This is Paul's goal. He gives slaves and masters both the teaching and the tools necessary to, to transform their relationships from the inside out. Paul's not all that interested with people just doing things on the outside. He wants these transformations from the inside out, our heart change. And that is what he's calling for. In fact, there's a fascinating little side story going on. At the moment, he's writing this letter. We don't have time to go into it. We'll go into it in our, our home life groups. But in the moment he's writing this letter, uh, there's a couple of guys named uh, Philemon and Onesimus. Uh, one is a slave owner. The other one was his slave. He's a runaway slave who became a Christian. And Paul is about to send him back to the church in Colossians with this personal letter to Philemon, the slave owner, to, for this guy to give it to him now as a fellow brother in Christ. It's going to get really interesting in that church, especially because they read everything in public. Uh, it's just really cool. Philemon had to be like, uh, <laughs> can we read this in private, please? Um, anyway, that's good. We'll talk about it in home life. This scripture right here, Paul says, provide those working for you with what is right and fair. Right and fair, the words that he uses are the words for righteousness and equality. Righteousness and equality. See, things get really awkward. They get real messy real fast in the kingdom. This is unparalleled in Paul's day. What he's describing actually isn't a master-slave relationship. It's a, it's a working relationship. Provide what is what is right. Represent righteousness in your relationship. What is fair? What is equality? Yeah. Paul's very strategic. He meets them where they are, like a good missionary. And what he does is plant seeds that are going to grow far beyond this first century church. Praise the Lord. Okay. Let's, let's, uh, we're change gears now. In, in verse 2 of chapter 4, Paul changes directions. He approaches the end of this letter, and he moves back to instructions to the whole church community. He says some things here. He says, devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. Prayerful, watchfulness, and thankfulness. These are the three fundamental postures of a disciple. And then notice what Paul says next. And pray for us too. He, he's telling them, your prayers are important. They matter to me. They, they affect the world. Pray for us, too, that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Now, picture this. Where is Paul when he's writing this letter? We talked about it earlier. He's in prison. That's right. Paul's in prison. He's in chains. He's in prison, 
and listen to what he asks them to pray for. I'll tell you what I would be asking them to pray for. Guys, for Pete's sakes, pray that I get out of prison. I got to get out of here. This blows, right? I don't want to be in prison anymore. This is like Paul's one phone call. You know, you get when, you know, you're getting booked and he calls his friends and he says, pray that I share the gospel well. Not that the doors will open for me to get released, but that the doors will open for the gospel message to spread. He does the same thing back in Philippians. Remember, he just prayed, Lord, send more guards so that I can just, because I got a captive audience. They're chained to me, and I'm just telling them about Jesus all day. Whatever circumstance I'm in, Paul desires, whatever, whatever I'm in, help, Lord, just help me use it wisely. Help me make the most of every opportunity to share the gospel because that's what it's all about. That's Paul's heart. See, for us, for me, the circumstance is central. Whatever the circumstance is, that's what we kind of default to praying about. For Paul, his prayers are all about the opportunity. God, send me another opportunity. Open up opportunities. For, and you know what? It seems like those prayers are answered. Paul's prayers get answered. He gets a lot of opportunities. Verse 5. I think we wonder, why didn't God answer my prayers? We might be praying the wrong prayers. I don't know. Think about that. That's a freebie. Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. The Greek right there, it means literally to redeem the time. To redeem the time. Take those those junkyard moments in your day. How many of you have those times you're just you're stuck somewhere, you're in a line, you're doing something, you just feel like, oh, this is just wasted time. Those moments that feel like a waste of time, take those times in your week and turn them into whatever opportunity you can to help reveal the kingdom to people outside the family of God. This word for redeem in the Greek, exagorazo, exagorazo, that's just fun to say. It means literally to buy back a slave and give him his freedom. These moments of your day, he compares it to buying back a slave and giving him his freedom. Releasing him to fulfill his true purpose. Give these moments of your day purpose. And he says being wise. Being wise is knowing uh, what to say to people, to how to communicate truth relationally and strategically, what to say and not say in every situation. We all need those. We always need that wisdom of the Holy Spirit. He says, let your conversation be full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Full of grace, seasoned with salt, ready to answer. Full of grace, seasoned with salt, ready to answer. Being full of grace simply means that when someone is talking with you about Jesus, they should walk away from that conversation saying, man, what an amazing gracious, loving person that was. What a gracious person, man. When non-Christians talk about Christians, when, when they talk, or, or, or better yet, when they talk to us, and they're talking to us about Jesus, they ought to walk away, whatever else they think of us, at the top of their list, they ought to be, that was really gracious. Those people are gracious, Right? When's the last time you heard someone say, those, those fundamentalist evangelicals, man, they are so gracious. I mean, I don't agree with all their politics, but I'll tell you what, they are so gracious. Seasoned with salt. Now, salt was used as a preservative back then, but I think here he's talking about taste. 
I think he's talking about taste. In our conversations, we're not only to be gracious, but we ought to be tasty, right? They ought to say, man, those guys are just fun talking with them. I like talking to them. You know, I know, I know he's a Christian, but I don't know something about him. I just like talking to him, right? Seasoned. So that means just the right amount. Not too much, not fake sincerity or being overbearing or something like that. But, but you're injecting life and hope into every conversation. People see you coming. They're like, oh, good. That Christian guy's coming. I like talking to him. After this, Paul closes his letter by mentioning several people by name. And, and I, I love this. And go off and read it on your own. I, I love it because it reminds us that, like I said, this isn't just some scholarly article that he published to the world or something. This is a letter to real flesh and blood human beings. Real people. He loves them. He cares about them. He's sending greetings. He's wishing greetings. We won't read through them all, but uh, go through it later and just notice the incredible little personal notes that Paul includes here in this 2,000-year-old letter to a church. Praise the Lord. Has the study of Colossians been a blessing to you? I tell you, it's been such a blessing. It has made me, it just has made me love the Scripture so much more. Just getting in there, it's so good. As we, as we bring this series to a close today, I want to tell you what was kind of the highlight for me in the book of Colossians. It was a phrase that stuck out back in chapter 2, something Paul said. He said, my goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love. He's talking about the church. So that they may have the full riches of complete understanding. The full riches, because it's like a treasure, right? There's a treasure box here. In order that they may know the mystery of God, and that mystery, namely, is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. That phrase, Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, that has stuck with me. This idea that in Christ we find all the treasure of wisdom and knowledge. I don't need to add anything else to Jesus I don't need to go hunting through the rest of the world's philosophies. I don't need to be a Christian slash anything. I, I don't need anything more. There is infinite riches of wisdom and knowledge in Christ. Why go anywhere else? Jesus is so good. He is tasty, right? And, and what's stuck with me since we've walked through this series is that Jesus is more than enough. He's, he's enough and he's more than enough. I can seek him every moment of every day for the rest of my life and I'm only gonna scratch the surface of this rich and wonderful relationship, but I wanna spend my life trying to do so. I wanna live for him. I wanna live in him and through him. I wanna recalibrate every habit, every thought pattern I have to be more passionate about getting to know Jesus better. That's what I want. I want to get there. And so my final challenge to you, friends, today is this. What do you think you need to do in response to this letter? What are you going to do in response to this, this series? We don't want it to just be head knowledge. Don't let this just be head knowledge so we're just learning stuff. That doesn't do us any good. You know, it doesn't help us to walk out of this door. Now we have a degree in Colossians. Big deal. Nobody cares, right? What matters is living it out. We want to live this out. What are some next steps? 
What are some next steps? Here's a few I, I would suggest. You might be at one of these places. You might be here. You might be seeking after Christ. And what I would say to you is keep seeking. Keep seeking after Christ. Never stop investigating Jesus, seeking after him. But don't stop there and just endlessly investigate Jesus. Because some of you, it, you might need to move on to the next step, which is commit to Christ. Stop dating Jesus. Get married. Commit to Christ. and Your life will change. Maybe you've committed to Christ. A next step for you would be to commit to community. Commit to community, because this is the body of Christ. You want to get to know God? Get to know his people. Get to know his body. Live in community. Join a home life group. Plug for home life group. <laughs> Amen. Something else we can do. Sign up to serve. Sign up to serve. If you're not already jumping in to serve in some way, that's what family does. See, we're a family. And when it's Thanksgiving, it's all hands on deck, right? Everybody's in the kitchen. Everybody's helping out, set the table, make the turkey, whatever it is. Every Sunday's Thanksgiving. Jump in. It's all hands on deck. Serve. That's what family does. It's, it's how we do love. This is a great way to put love into practice, to put mutual submission, those kind of things. Like, what does that look like in real life? A great way to just kind of see that played out in your life. Sign up to serve. When we serve the body of Christ as a, as a volunteer, that is so important. We get, to, we get to live this out. We get to be part of the kingdom, living it out. Even, even those few of us who we, like, work here during the week, you know, we have, we have a, like, a job, uh, we also volunteer. We also serve in multiple areas because that's where the joy is, right? The joy is not coming up here and holding office hours, I'll tell you. It's in serving, right? Man, that's where the joy is. What else can you do? Talk to others about Jesus. Tell others about Jesus. Man, there's nothing, nothing like just getting to sow those seeds, change people's minds about what Jesus is all about, right? In the, in, in the course of things, they're going to see Christians differently too. When they get to know you, they meet you, and you're telling them in grace and love all about Jesus. Talk to other people about Jesus. And lastly, invite a friend to church. Invite someone to church because we're having a good time around here, and it's just too good to keep to ourselves, right? There's a whole bunch of people in our community who need Jesus, and God has called us uh, to represent Jesus to the world. So we need them to come in. So you need to bring them. You need to invite people to church. Ask God to help you have the courage to take whatever this next step is for you. Ask God to give you that courage. And finally, I would just say this in closing. Like we talked about some, like I said, some controversial issues tonight. But I would encourage you, as you read your Bibles, and I hope this sermon, if it does anything, makes you run home and read your, go read Colossians for yourself. Did, what, did that really say what he said? You know, Go read it. As you read your Bibles t together, and especially in community, I encourage you to read the Bible in community. That's the way it was read in the first century. We should read in community. As you're examining the Scriptures, examine the context of the Scriptures. Notice the context. Even the ones you've read a thousand times, I guarantee the Bible continues to surprise me all the time. The, one, the Scriptures I've read a thousand times. And ask yourself, how does the way that Jesus modeled in his words and actions, 
how does that lead me to act in my relationship with other people? How does Jesus' words and actions, the way he modeled it, how does that lead me to act in my relationships, including my relationships with my spouse? How do I act like Jesus to my spouse, my family, my kids, my parents, my friends, those I work with, those I work for? How can I be like Jesus? To my brothers and sisters in the church, how can I be more like Jesus? We well, gotta read the words of Jesus, read about Jesus, and let's keep moving towards that kingdom ideal. That's the ideal, that's our goal, the kingdom. We wanna be a church that's bathed in mutual grace and united in our love of Jesus, amen? We're gonna, we're gonna try to bring the kingdom down to earth, but you know what? The truth is, it'll never, it'll always be not quite yet until the day Jesus comes. He's gonna bring the kingdom in its fullness. Amen, and that's gonna be a wonderful day too. Praise the Lord. Our prayer partners are coming down now, and I just wanna invite you, if you're here today, you never asked Jesus to just be a part of your life, you never just surrendered everything and given it over to him and just said, Jesus, I've made a thousand mistakes, I'm sorry for them come into my life. Forgive me of all my sins. Be my Lord and my Savior. If you've never done that, do it today. I encourage you, come down. Let these good people pray with you, one of these people, and uh, and they will be so happy and so gracious to pray with you and get you started on your new journey with Jesus. Amen? Hallelujah. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you so much. Thank you for this day. Lord, we thank you for, for Scripture, Father God. We thank you that you are bringing it to life for us, and we're seeing it as this beautiful living thing, Father God, not just some ancient document, but this beautiful thing, Lord God. Help us to live it out. Help us to live out the kingdom, to be good composers. I mean, good, good conductors. You're the composer. Help us to be good conductors, Father God, everywhere we go, conducting this music that Jesus wrote. We thank you, Father. I thank you for every single person in this room, every person believing for a miracle, Lord God, of healing, uh, a miracle in relationships in their home, Father God. You are the miracle worker. Nothing is beyond your, your hand. I thank you, Father, for that. You're the miracle working God. We love you, Jesus. You, Jesus, are greater than everything. We want to spend our lives getting to know you more. Praise your name. In Jesus' name, all the people said, Amen. Amen. All right. Be blessed. Have a wonderful rest of your day. Have a wonderful week. Hope you have the best week you've like ever had. Wouldn't that be awesome? Next Sunday, bring the kids, the whole family. It's going to be all generation Sunday, super soaker Sunday, tacos. It's going to be my dream coming true. Make sure you're here. If you have any prayers at all that you need, make sure you come down and talk to these people after church. Hallelujah.